Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. Former U.S. President Donald Trump is facing 34 felony charges related to hush money payments allegedly made to an adult movie star during his 2016 election run and allegations of falsifying business records. He's the first American president in history to be charged with a crime. Trump pleaded not guilty last week in New York and said prosecutors lack evidence. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. This fake case was brought only to interfere with the upcoming 2024 election, and it should be dropped immediately. Between now and his next appearance in this case, which is scheduled for December, America is in uncharted political territory. So what does it mean for the future of U.S. politics, the Republican Party, and for Donald Trump himself? Joining me now to talk about all of this is Rick Wilson, co-founder of The Lincoln Project, and Sean Spicer, former White House press secretary under Donald Trump. And I note to our viewers, we're not disclosing Mr. Wilson's location due to security concerns, something you'd normally see when we do an interview. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you, too, and, and quite the discussion to be having on Easter. Rick, we heard Donald Trump there saying it's a weak case. We've heard even some of uh, Trump's enemies say they're not sure how, case, how strong the, the actual legal case against Trump is. What's your take on whether or not this is damaging to him, and does it matter whether or not these charges stick? You know, I, I really don't believe it does. I think a lot of this sort of behavior from Donald Trump is baked in the cake of the minds of most Americans. They they have already been exposed to all this information in the past. There's no new data here with Stormy Daniels or anything like that. So, you know, I don't think that 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 you know anyone is going to wake up in the morning and say, "Oh, wow, Donald Trump paid a porn star." They know this. It's it's really like very very deeply cooked into their perceptions of Trump. And as we've seen so far with the raid on Mar-a-Lago and the indictments, all these things do is strengthen him with the Republican base. He's not losing juice with the Republican base at this point, um, and I think it makes his nomination as the as the as the 2024 Republican nominee more certain. Even though it will probably corrode some of the 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 general election number that he would he would hope to achieve. Uh, Sean, you knew Donald Trump quite well. What do you imagine his reaction was to these these charges? I mean, he looked kind of very serious going in and out of the courtroom, but then he seemed to have rebounded by the time he gave the speech at Mar-a-Lago. Do you think he's scared? I, I don't. And, and frankly, I actually find it interesting and odd that, that Rick and I agree on the political consequences of this. Look, I think... Um, I, I would argue this, that Trump went into that courtroom not entirely knowing what the 34 counts would be because of the nature of our judicial system. I think once he realized it was just 34 cut and paste items of the same issue over and over again. And for the Canadian viewer out there to understand that this is basically, think what you will of Donald Trump, you don't have to like him, uh, but, but it is a bookkeeping issue in New York that would almost in all cases be a, a misdemeanor case, which has a two-year statute of limitations. The incident occurred in 2016, so normally in any normal case, it would have been thrown out if it wasn't prosecuted by 2018. In this particular case, the, the DA elevated it to a felony in New York State, felonies have a five-year statute of limitations. That would mean that you would have to have dealt with it by 2021. We're obviously well past that window as well. So I, I think that when his lawyer said to him, Mr. Trump, 
this is what we're dealing with. This is the full nature of it. And this is uh, these are the witnesses that they're relying on. They didn't list an underlying crime in all of this. Uh, that he was able to probably rest a lot easier. And that trip from the courtroom back to Mar-a-Lago was a lot more relaxing than it was going to the courtroom, knowing that there's a really good chance that this thing's getting thrown out and it will never see the light of day. Now, Rick, those aren't the only um, issues Donald Trump has legally. There's the possibility of charges coming related uh, to the situation in Georgia. There is a civil trial as well related to uh, an alleged sexual assault, which is described as battery in that because of the nature of the U.S. legal system. This isn't the end of the road if these charges get thrown out for Trump. But what does this ongoing legal jeopardy look like for him as it plays out against the background of a presidential race? Most consequential for Donald Trump would be the case that Jack Smith, special prosecutor, is handling right now regarding classified documents. I think that's the case that has the most actual potential legal impact against Trump. I'm not an attorney, but weighing it, weighing all these cases together, again, the MAGA base does not look at the legal challenges to Trump as a detriment or an impediment. They look at it as an affirmation of their belief system. Now, general election voters are different. But I do think the classified documents case has more more potential political juice to be squeezed than than any of the rest in terms of, of negative impact on Donald Trump. What what Trump's getting out of this, though, is the return of the constant media spotlight, the constant focus and attention. And it, it the, the people that are really being hurt politically by all this are guys like Ron DeSantis and people like Nikki Haley and all the rest of the cat and dog candidates in the 2024 presidential primary. The person benefiting from it right now although at this point still at the margins other than Donald Trump is Joe Biden. Because again, I think in the general election, a lot of the criminality, accusation of criminality, while they're very well known, it's a constant reminder and a drumbeat as these cases play out over the rest of 23 and into 24. Oh, it was really interesting to listen to Trump's. Sorry, go ahead, Sean. I see you jumping in there. One point that I think is important, you bring up these other cases. I think by this one going first, and you saw the spectrum of, of individuals coming out, everybody from Mitt Romney, uh, even Rick's comments, you know, just being points that, that individuals who don't necessarily like Donald Trump, who politically are opposed to him, have admitted the weakness of this case and, frankly, the political weaponization of this case in a, in a lot of ex, uh, a lot of cases. So what that has done, I think, when when you talk about going forward in the other cases, it, it probably in the minds of a lot of voters is it taints the, the the attacks going forward so that while there may be hypothetically a, a more important or more or a stronger legal scenario going forward, because this one went first, it is going to look like the entire system has been weaponized and is coming after Trump. And he's going to be able to point at those additional cases and say, this is just another attempt to come after me, whether or not they are stronger or weaker going forward, because this case went first and it is so weak and so politicized and has drawn the Republican base from one extreme to the other together in opposition to what Alvin Bragg has done in Manhattan. I think that it is going to benefit Trump politically going forward because everyone's going to look at all of these cases going forward under the guise of how this case was brought. So why you know, it, is it? Mark it down. Ahead, it's a yeah. rare day when Sean and I agree twice in one day on something. <laughs> but he's not wrong. You can't beat Donald Trump just on on the legal atmospherics of this thing. You can't beat him in a general election just on the legal atmospherics. You have to beat him on a whole spectrum of things. And there are plenty of reasons for people who oppose Trump to not hang their hat 
on, on hoping for legal miracles. This is a, a category mistake I think that a lot of people are making in this. Um, and there are some people on, on, the, on the Democratic side who have decided, okay, now that he's indicted, that changes the ballgame. You know, the numbers don't lie. The chemistry among, among Republicans is not changing except to box out DeSantis and the rest. And, and there are plenty of ways to beat Trump, but miracles aren't a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. And, and I, I, I'm a very stern critic of, this, uh, of, of former President Trump, one of the sternest, I, would, I think it could be argued. Um, and I don't think the cases here, as of yet, except for Jack Smith, pose an existential threat to the guy. You've got to beat him, not just in the courtroom. And look, he should be held accountable. He's not above the law. No one should be above the law. Um, but you've got to beat him politically, and you've got to beat him on the on the consequences of the things he's done to the country, not hoping that Alvin Bragg will deliver a knockout blow, because it just doesn't exist in the political space in this country. So, Sean, do, do you think there are other Republicans who are, are capable of doing that, or is he going to be the Republican nominee, and what does that mean for the party? Well, Trump's going to be the Republican nominee right now, and is is his his lead has continued to grow in in the last couple of weeks but it's not just it's not just the issues that that Rick mentioned i think you also look at a guy who's run twice the the mechanical advantages they has in terms of voter data and fundraising capabilities far exceed those of any other candidate but look when you look at and the other thing is just mechanically speaking the republican party uh, has not laid out its plans going forward. Uh, each state has to give its plan to the Republican National Committee by October 1st. And in that plan, every state will have a minimum threshold that every state lays out that you have to achieve. So it's 10%, 15%, some as high as 20% that you have to get in every state or caucus primary uh, in order to even qualify for delegates. Under the current scenario, the only two people who qualify for delegates are Trump and, in some cases, DeSantis. So Trump's focus right now is to squash DeSantis, really go after him, get him down below the threshold that most states will have. And therefore, he will be the only candidate that would even qualify for delegates as we head into the Republican primary and caucus season starting in January. So right now, frankly, Trump may be the only candidate that is qualified to achieve delegates as we head into that system. Um, and, and then, look, I, the one other thing that I would say is it is way too early with our economy the way it is, with immigration the way it is and with foreign policy the way it is, I, I, I would bet that that. Trump has still got the edge on Biden. Um, now, it's early, uh, and a lot of things could happen both to Trump, to, to Biden, and to our country as a whole. Uh, but I think, as it, you know, the first thing is first, which is winning the primary. And there's no question that Donald Trump is in the poll position and well and far of anyone else in the race. Uh, Rick, we just have a few moments left, but do you agree that Trump could edge out Biden? Look, I think it's going to be a very competitive election. Externalities are are always the, the monster no one can predict in a campaign. Does, does the economy turn turn up or down? Um, does Ukraine turn into a, a, a defeat for Vladimir Putin, or does it drag on? There are a million different equations that, that have a really meaningful set of effects on voter behavior outside of the stuff that we talk about on the air all the time and outside of the sort of showmanship of the campaigns. You know, we don't know what the economy will look like. We don't know what what the, the strategic picture will look like. I think Biden is actually in a net positive position right now, because in part, the, the things that surround Trump are noisy and staticky and ugly, and people don't like them. And, and Joe Biden has been, at, for a one-term Democratic president, 
much more effective than a lot of people, including myself, had an anticipation of in passing things like the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill, et cetera. But it's going to be a long haul and a long road, and it's going to be a tough fight on both sides. Thank you both so much for joining us today with your thoughts and your insight. You bet. Thank you for having us. For the first time since the Apollo program more than 50 years ago, NASA is planning to send astronauts on a lunar mission. And this time, a Canadian will be on board. Scheduled to lift off in November of 2024, the 10-day mission named Artemis II will send four astronauts around the moon. And while the Orion spacecraft will not land on the moon's surface, it will travel past the moon before returning to Earth, which means those on board may well be traveling further than any human has in history. Jeremy Hansen is the first Canadian to be on a lunar mission, a point of pride for Canada. 24 people have ever seen with their own eyes the circle of the Earth. And now a Canadian is going to be part of the very next people to see that the first non-American to do it. It's a big deal. Joining me now is Jeremy Hansen, Colonel Jeremy Hansen, a Canadian astronaut who will be on Artemis II. Thank you so much for joining us today, Colonel. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. How did you find out that you were the person who had been selected as one of the four to go on this mission? Yeah, it's as simple as a phone call from the president of the Canadian Space Agency, Lisa Campbell. She called me probably two and a half weeks ago to officially uh, designate me and asked me if I was ready to fly an Artemis II. And I was like, 100%, can't wait to go. So super excited to do that. And then after that, you know, it starts to sink in a little bit. It's a, it's a really big deal for me, and, uh, but I'm very humbled and uh, super proud to do it. What does the period between now and when you lift off in 2024 look like for training for you? Yeah, this is you know still coming together. We know that we uh, we have a training flow about 18 months long, getting ready to fly. And what that really looks like is developing the the procedures, the testing the software. It's something we call like test and evaluation. So. We will actually work with the engineers on the vehicle, the software, we'll test it, we'll see what doesn't work, and then we'll work together with them to create a solution. And we have flown this capsule in space before in this rocket, but there were no humans on it. So putting humans on it really changes it. We have to add in the manual control systems, and we have to test all that so that we'll be able to fly it in space manually if we need to as a backup and to test those systems. Uh, we need to put all the life support systems in, um, and uh, be ready to test all that before we head to the moon. And just saying that, I mean, that's crazy. We're going to the moon. That's so awesome. It's, it's pretty incredible. I think it's just so uplifting for people. It's this sense of human achievement and venturing into space and, and this renewed interest in lunar missions and in deep space. I know we've heard that this is part of a step towards landing on the moon and eventually Mars. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. This is something I really want uh, Canadians to understand and be proud of. You know, this is an historic moment for Canada, for sure. And we are here because of decades of effort by thousands of people, you know, step after step, bringing us to this point where we're bringing enough value to the international partnership that we've been invited to have an astronaut on board Artemis II, this historic mission, you know, second country in the world to send a, um, a human into deep space. But it is just one step, and there are going to be many more after this, and we are going to eclipse this in a big way. We're going to have humans walking on the moon. We're going to have humans going to Mars. I have every ambition for Canada to have a Canadian walk on the moon and go to Mars and be part of that in the future, 
and we really can do it. And that's, you know, that's what this message is. I love that you brought that up. It's, it's to open up the minds of all of us and remind us to dream big, set big goals, and we can do some incredible things with our international partners. What are some of the things you'll be doing during this space flight on board? What's the information you're looking for, the research that you're hoping to bring back? Yeah, you know, specifically on the technical side for us, we need to get this capsule into orbit. So we'll launch it to the Kennedy Space Center and we'll spend about a day and a half, two days in Earth orbit where we'll be testing out the systems. We're actually going to a really high Earth orbit, which means like we'll see the Earth up close as if we're at the International Space Station. But we're going to go much, much further than that. Um, so the International Space Station is about 400 kilometers above the Earth. We're going to go out to more than 50, 60,000 kilometers above the surface of the Earth while we test these systems. But still within the safety grasp of Mother Earth, if something goes wrong, we can come home quickly. And once we have a look at all that and we're confident in the systems, then we're going to do the transluter injection and head out to the moon. And that's a commitment because you can't just turn around and come back if things aren't going your way. And so you, uh, once you take that burn, you are going, and uh, it's about an eight-day round trip to the moon and back from there. With SpaceX underway and, and the news recently about the Virgin Space Project, uh, in that case, not being successful, what are your thoughts about the role of sort of privatization of space versus the kind of government agencies like the one that you're working for? Are, are you uh, thinking that that's sort of a, an additional runway? Is it negative competition? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's it's all um, it's all plus uh, from my perspective. In fact, it's the plan. I mean, this is this is why government programs exist. We exist to you know buy down the risk until commercial companies can accept that, and then they can push us further. Um, and so this private, um, this commercial and government partnership that we have that's continuing to grow is bringing huge dividends. It doesn't mean that there aren't any challenges that come along with that transition. There are, of course, regulatory challenges, et cetera, but. Um, the, the advantages far outweigh um, the, uh, the disadvantages from my perspective. And that's why you're seeing so much change in space, because we've really hit a new era. And so it's, that's why it's so important that Canada is taking these bold and courageous steps right now, because if not, we would be left behind. We will quickly be pay, outpaced by other countries' uh, commercial space efforts. And so I'm really proud of Canada for stepping up. I think a lot of Canadians are surprised that we were chosen. There's been questions about whether we should continue to invest in the space program, whether it should be astronauts or payloads. Um, obviously, you are the argument for what happens if you invest in astronauts. What do you think the future of the Canadian space program should be? Yeah, so obviously, you know, I see it very clearly from where I've been sitting, been working in the Canadian Space Agency for over 13 years. I've been all across our country. I've seen our industry seen our academics or scientists or engineers, I just believe in them so, um, so strongly. And what I, what I've noticed is that if you don't set big goals that bring these people together to work on big problems, they just end off kind of doing great things or things on their own. They're good things, but they're amazing accomplishments when you bring them together, united under a goal. And space just seems to do that. It's extraordinary for that. And so um, I think that this is very, very important for our future. You know, when I speak with my kids, you know, something that has really struck me, you know, they're teenagers now and they're starting to really pay attention to um, the global problems. They're starting to really talk about them. I think that's pretty natural at that time, you know, in adolescence, moving into adulthood. And these global problems require global solutions. 
And space is one of these examples of where we are figuring out how to work together globally. And that's a very, very important example. And it's not easier to work together. You know, I've been remarking to my American colleagues, um, you know, over the past week that, you know, the United States did not have to invite Canada to go back to the moon with them. They deliberately chose to do that. And they did that because they're leading. And we listened to President Biden's words in the, in the House um, recently, and it was all about that collaboration and the possibilities when we come together. I mean, this is very, very intentional. And so I think that the, the positive outcomes of setting these big goals and countries coming together is just going to pay huge dividends for the future of society on this planet. One last question for you. What did you tell your kids? Oh, I, you know, when I told them, uh, I said, uh, I've been assigned to, to fly an Artemis II to the moon. And uh, it really touched me. Um, their reaction was just so, um, so positive and so authentically uh, positive and happy for me, which really meant a lot to me, it really touched me. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Colonel Hansen. We appreciate your time. We wish you luck. All of Canada is cheering you on. Yes, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And uh, I, I couldn't be more proud of Canada for getting us to this place uh, so that we can make these contributions and inspire our youth for the future. So thanks for having me today. It's time for One Last Thing. There have been a series of recent defence spending announcements, everything from the F-35s to shipbuilding, all portrayed by the government as an increase in defence spending. While there are significant investments there, no doubt, they are also the absolute baseline for Canada to remain a sovereign country with a functioning Air Force and Navy. They don't get us near the NATO 2% target, and there was virtually no new defense spending in the federal budget. Meanwhile, the troops continue to feel demoralized and to struggle to get by with old equipment and rising costs of living. And in all of this, there is still no date for that promised defense policy review. Perhaps the government will reveal that in coming days. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.